Leading up to Christmas in our evening services, we're looking at some texts from the first chapter of the Gospel of Luke. Uh, Last week, Pastor Greg talked about Mary. This week, we're going to read a uh, text sung or prayed by Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist. Let's read Luke 1 from verse 68 to 79. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and has redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, For you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide our feet into the path of peace. This is God's holy and infallible word for us today. I'll be looking at three ways that this text can guide us in our prayers tonight. First, don't be dumb. Second, praise God for the fulfillment of his promises. And third, look forward to God's continued work. So my first point is don't be dumb. And I'm actually going to expand on that a little bit. Don't be dumb, but if you are, keep praising the Lord. I thought about leaving it just don't be dumb, but I I wasn't quite brave enough for that. But let's talk about that. In one of my middle school basketball games, our coach, Tony, got pretty frustrated, partly because our team was not playing well at all. We were losing by double digits, and it was getting worse and worse, but also because he felt like the refs weren't calling the game fairly. And somewhere in the second quarter, he wanted to call a timeout during a free throw, and the ref didn't hear him quite in time, and our coach just lost it. He just blows up. He took a couple steps onto the court and he started screaming and yelling, I want my time out. I want my time out. Ref, I want my time out. And the ref looked over at him, looked at him on the court by a couple steps and volume going up and up. And he called the technical on the coach. And I didn't even know you could do that as a middle schooler, but apparently you can. So the ref calls a technical on the coach and the coach just keeps screaming. The other team has taken more free throw thoughts, shots, and our coach is still screaming, I want my time out! I want my time out! I want my, I want my time out! One of the players on our team went over to Coach, it's okay, Coach, Coach, it's okay, Coach! Didn't stop him. He just kept screaming, I want my time out. And the ref gave him a couple seconds and then looked at him, called another technical foul, motioned for the other team to keep taking more free throw shots, took a couple steps over and said, get out of my gym. You're done for tonight. Get out. You're done. And one of the assistant coaches pretty much had to drag Coach Tony out of the gym. And as he had been screaming, his voice had gotten more and more hoarse. So by this time, his voice was pretty much gone. And going across the floor as he was getting pushed out, I just want my time out! I just want my time out! And he spent the rest of the evening standing outside the gym complaining to one of the assistant coaches that he just wanted his time out. It was dumb. It was pretty embarrassing for all of us as middle schoolers playing at someone else's gym. And it seemed kind of fitting that he'd lost his voice. We all wish he'd lost it about five minutes before that, to be honest with you. 
And at our next practice, the coach, in a whisper, because his voice still wasn't there, apologized to us, and he apologized to the assistant coaches, and he said he'd apologized to his supervisor, and he'd called the coach of the other team and apologized to him, and he'd called the referee, and he just had to apologize to everybody. Don't be dumb. There are times that we get stuck on stupid things and we say things that are just dumb and sometimes it gets us into trouble. Now earlier in Luke 1, Zechariah, the man whose voice we heard in these verses, he hadn't gotten into a shouting match with a referee, but he'd done kind of the same thing with an angel. The angel Gabriel had come to him and said, Zechariah, you're going to have a son. And this was at a special time in Zechariah's life. He was serving in the temple in a special way. It was a great time. But he was an old guy. An old guy, probably past having children. But this angel comes and says, you're going to have a son. He's going to be a great prophet like Elijah. This this child, this boy, he's going to turn the people's hearts back to God. Good news delivered by God's messenger. But Zechariah's response is kind of dumb. What? How can I be sure about this? Don't you know I'm old? Don't you know my wife is old? Are you sure you know what you're talking about here? And Gabriel didn't take that question very well. Gabriel looks at Zechariah and he says, I stand in the presence of God, and I have come to bring you this good news. I stand in the presence of God, and I have come to bring you this good news And you're hung up on how old you are? I'm adding a little bit, by the way, here. You're hung up on how old you are and how old your wife is? If you can't say anything nice, Zachariah, you are not going to say anything at all. And Gabriel says that Zachariah won't be able to talk. He will be literally dumb until all of this comes true. And then Zachariah couldn't speak. And he couldn't speak for months and months and months. Probably, we aren't sure exactly how long, but probably for over a year, Zechariah lost his voice. Zechariah messed up, and he messed up big. He had an angel come to him with God's good news, and he rolled his eyes and said, yeah, right, how's that going to work? And Zechariah got disciplined for his doubt. He spent months and months unable to communicate. But even in the midst of that discipline, the Lord blessed him. Zachariah's wife Elizabeth did become pregnant. Their son was born. And then when Zechariah obeyed the angel's instructions to name the child John, his tongue was loosened and he could speak. And he praised the Lord with the words that we read tonight. Zechariah was dumb, but God was still faithful. And let that be an encouragement for all of us tonight. All of us mess up. Even when we have God's word crystal clear in front of us, We make mistakes, we delay, we ask petty questions, we push back, we doubt, we constantly turn away from God's plan to our own plans. And every now and then we just hit the pause button on our faith because we have other things to do. But even when we do all of that, the Lord remains faithful. Even when we do kind of dumb stuff, the Lord continues to work with us. Even when we neglect our prayers, the Lord continues to work with us. And our faith can continue to develop even after those times when we've hit pause for a while. Even after those times that we've asked questions of God that maybe didn't really come from a place of faith. 
even after those times when we've just turned our back and said, yeah, right, how are you going to work that out, God? It is always, now, any day, every day, it is always a good day to turn back to the Lord in prayer and praise. It's always a good time. Now let's look at Zechariah's prayer itself tonight. There's two parts to the prayer. In the first part, from verse 68 to 75, Zechariah is doing more looking back toward past promises God has made. And he's paying attention to how God is fulfilling those past promises. And that's a great pattern for us in our spiritual lives, too, to pay attention to how God has fulfilled his promises. In the seniors' Bible study group that I lead, we're going through the book of Exodus this year. And last week in our study, we were talking about the Israelites and the time when they were between the Red Sea and Mount Sinai. So they'd come out of Egypt, they'd cross the Red Sea, and they were in the desert on the way to Mount Sinai, probably a few months there. And if you remember that part of the story of Exodus, the Israelites do a lot of grumbling. They grumble and they grumble and they grumble. They grumble because there's not enough water, and God gives them water. And then they grumble because there's not enough food, and God gives them food day after day after day. And then again, they grumble because, again, there's not enough water. Now, in our discussion in that group, some people pointed out how the Israelites had good reason to grumble. If you're in a desert and you don't have water, it makes sense to be concerned about this, right? It just makes sense. But some other people in the group pointed out that the Israelites... They'd just been delivered out of Egypt. They'd seen God rain down these plagues on the Egyptians and their fake gods. They'd seen God defeat Pharaoh. They'd seen God lead them out and part the waters of the Red Sea and bring his people safely through and then bring those waters crashing down again on the Egyptians. These people had seen all of that. And yet it seems like just a few days, maybe months later, they'd forgotten all about it. Instead of gratitude, they just kept on grumbling and grumbling and grumbling. And to paraphrase Exodus slightly, a lot of what they say is, yeah, that's all great, but what have you done for us lately? God, what have you done for us lately? I am hungry and thirsty today. What are you going to do about it today? And the Lord does ask that we go to him with all our needs and all our requests. I'm not saying don't do that. But our prayer lives do have a certain shallowness to them if all we do is ask God for more and more and more. Relationships where all you do is take and take and take and take, they can never become very deep relationships. And so if all we do is take and take and take and ask for God and ask and ask and ask from God, in some ways we're just playing around in the shallow end. It's good for us to spend time expressing our gratitude to God along with asking him for things. So Zechariah in this, these verses shows us one way to deepen our prayer lives. And that's to remember the promises that God has made and that he's fulfilled. One of my seminary professors liked to call this rehearsing the mighty acts of God. And it's good for us to rehearse, to go over again and again the mighty acts of God. Zechariah is looking back at a lot of promises that God made in the Old Testament. 
He gives thanks for the promises the Lord gave to Abraham. He picks up on the language of deliverance and holiness from Exodus and from some other early books of the Bible. He mentions the house of David. He talks about how the prophets have given all these promises. Zechariah is giving thanks for the whole sweep of the Old Testament story and for how he sees that it's going to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And if we think back of some of the Old Testament prayers we've talked about in these services the last few months, you think about Hannah. Hannah goes and prays for the Lord to deliver her from her trouble, and the Lord gives her a child, and that child turns out to be the one who saves Israel from her enemies. And here Zechariah sees the coming of John, the last prophet, and Jesus, the one who will forever save God's people from their enemies. And if we think of King David, David wanted to build a house for the Lord, and instead the Lord came to him and said, I'm going to make a house for you, and I'm going to put one of your descendants on the throne forever, and I'm going to take care of the people of Israel forever. And in the coming of Jesus, Zechariah sees how this will be the forever king who will make all things right and who will take care of God's people forever. And so in our prayers, it's good for us to rehearse the mighty acts of God. It's good for us to look at our own lives and think about what has God done for us? What has God done for us lately? And what has God God done for us over the years and the decades? God has delivered us from sin. He's given us new life. For many of us, he's delivered us from sickness and trouble and need. And it's good for us to remember that and to give thanks for it. And it's good for us to think about the broader church around the world through history in our own lives, in our own experience, and to look at how God has always been there for his people, to give thanks for how generation after generation all around the world, God has kept his church going. Sure isn't anything we do, but God has kept his church going through blessing and through persecution, and that's worth giving thanks to God for. And it's really good for us to read Bible stories, to look at the scriptures, and to see these examples of God's faithfulness that are recorded for us in this book. In this book, we see God make great promises and fulfill them. So it's good for us to look back with gratitude intentionally, to look at our lives, to look at the bigger church, to look at the scriptures, and to see the many, many, many ways that the Lord has acted for our good. Now, if your prayer life is anything like mine, it's often hard to come up with things to give thanks for. Our minds run much more naturally to petition than to praises. But if we open our eyes to our lives, to those around us, to our church, to the scriptures, those all give us many, many reasons to praise the Lord and to express gratitude to him. Now, we're asked to pray for our daily bread, and that's certainly something we should do But it's also good for us to give thanks, to say thank you, God, for all the provision to me, to us, to your people over the years. For my third point tonight, Zechariah also looks forward to God's continued work. Now, we don't have the same exact predictive prophetic sense that Zechariah did, but we too can look forward to the fulfillment of God's promises. Now, Zechariah, of course, in his time, was looking forward to the coming of his son, John the Baptist. And then the great focus, of course, is on Jesus. John the Baptist came to prepare the way for Jesus. 
Zechariah was gifted to look forward and to see how his son John would prepare the way and then to have some glimpse of what Jesus would do for God's people, of how John would be the prophet who pointed forward to the rising son of God. Now, there's a nice double meaning to that phrase there in the English, that son of God. In verse 78, Zechariah mentions that the tender mercy of our God will bring the rising sun. And in the text itself, the sun there is S-U-N, like the ball of fire in heaven. But of course, Zechariah is also referring to Jesus, the son, S-O-N, of God. Jesus who would die and then rise again, and in his rising, bring light and life to all of us. And there's actually a double meaning in the original language there, too, that sense of the rising sun, the word behind that is often used in the Bible to talk about the sun rising and God bringing light to a dark world. But it's also often used to talk about a new branch or a new shoot rising up out of an old tree. Now, that's not a totally different image. The imagery is similar. But there's a couple messianic hints there, a couple things that pick up on promises from the Old Testament this old dead tree. New life will come to it. This time of darkness and night, light will dawn. Jesus is the one who will bring new life. Jesus is the one who will bring new light. So Zechariah looks forward and he gives thanks for what God's work will be. Now, of course, for us, we look back to Jesus' first coming. We look back to when Jesus was born, to when he grew, suffered, died, rose again. But it's good for us in this Advent season to put ourselves back, kind of, to put ourselves back in Zachariah's place, to look forward again to Christmas, to the birth of Jesus, and to be excited, to give thanks, to rejoice in the reality that God himself chose to come down and join himself with us. That God chose to become incarnate, to take on human nature in order to save us. That's a good thing for us to give thanks for this time of year. But then like Zechariah, we also are looking forward to the coming of Jesus. We're looking forward to Jesus' second coming when he'll come not as a baby, but as a king. And when he will chase all the darkness away forever. When all of God's promises will be fulfilled, when everything will be good again. And so in our prayers, as we look forward to that time, to those promises that God has made, we should ask God to fulfill them. We should ask God to send Jesus soon. Jesus himself told us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, that means a number of things, but one of the things that it means is that we're to ask God to send Jesus again soon. We're to beg God to bring the time when evil will be destroyed completely, when peace will come to reign forever and ever. Now, again, often we're much better at asking for our daily bread and looking at the things right in front of us, and we're invited and commanded to do just that. But Jesus also invites us, and this text in Luke invites us to look at the bigger things, to call for God's Son to come again, to ask for new life and new hope, to call for God's kingdom to come completely. 
So in our prayers, let's not neglect to look toward the fulfillment of God's promises, to look toward the mighty acts that God has promised us that he will do. So in our prayers this Advent, let's approach God as a gracious Father, even if we haven't always been faithful. Let's throw ourselves on God's faithfulness and commit and recommit ourselves to him and to our prayers. And let's give thanks with joy for God's fulfillment of his promises in the birth of Jesus. And let's pray with hope for Jesus' second coming when darkness and death will finally pass away and when the sun will rise over our lives for all eternity. Let us live in that 